Hair Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Aoife, and this is episode number 18. If you're new here, welcome. Each week on the podcast, I will be discussing a range of topics, including nutrition, mindset, and optimizing body composition and training for females. I'll also be interviewing other experts in the industry who specialize in a range of areas that can impact our results. If you enjoy this podcast episode, please feel free to share it with a friend or family member. You can also take a screenshot and share it to your Instagram story by tagging me at actively Aoife or tagging the podcast at empowerher.fitness. If you want to know more about me and my coaching services, you can also visit my website, which is www.empowerher.fitness. In today's episode, I am speaking with Glenn McIntosh. Glenn is a weight management psychologist who is incredibly passionate about eating, physical activity, weight, and body image. He is the author of the best-selling book, Thin Sanity, Seven Steps to Transform Your Mindset and Say Goodbye to Dieting Forever. Glenn is also the founder of Weight Management Psychology, a Brisbane-based clinic and online service. He is also featured as an on-screen psychologist on Network 10's The Biggest Loser. In today's episode, Glenn and I chat about how to overcome emotional eating. We cover various topics, including the difference between emotional eating and binge eating, why women are more likely to succumb to self-sabotage and emotional eating, how to identify if you are eating in response to food versus mood, strategies to retrain the brain and not succumb to emotional eating, then understanding that willpower is not necessary when it comes to dieting. And we also cover some mindset techniques to help you give up yo-yo dieting forever. So I'm really excited for the goals that you're going to learn in today's episode because Glenn shares a lot of his psychology and techniques that he uses with his clients. And I'm sure it'll be helpful to any of you who find that you are struggling with emotional eating. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thank you so much for having me, Aoife. I am really excited to speak with you today because as I was saying before I hit record there, um, I have read some of your book, Tensanity, and it has been really interesting to read um, just from a like psycho- psychology perspective, the mindset around emotional eating and food and um, be able to point some of my clients in that direction as well to um, have a look at that book because there's a lot of really great strategies in there around emotional eating. And that's a topic we're going to chat a little bit further on today. Beautiful. Before we um, get into it, I wanted to start off with some fun questions. So I have three questions to start off with. Uh, number one is, what does your morning routine look like? Okay, my my morning routine varies. It'll either be get up and just get right into work or get up and go to the gym. But either way, it always starts with something productive. I'm not one of those kind of like sleepy type of people. That's so good. Good to get a, a nice early start to the day, especially in Queensland when the sun rises so early. You don't have much of a choice if you live in Queensland. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, second question for you is, what is the best book you've read recently? And I'm going to put a caveat on this one. You can't say your own book. <laughs> <That's something different>. <laughs> <laughs> Who would say their own book? That's fantastic. I didn't even think of that. Um, the, the book I'm reading at the moment, which is I've just, I am such a reader of academic studies and research that it almost kills my love of reading. So I'm really lucky at the moment to have a really good um, fiction book. I'm reading that science fiction book, Dune, that they just made a movie about. 
Oh, wow. I've never heard of it. Oh, it's, it, they say it's one of the best science fiction books ever written, and it is just mind-blowingly clever. June, it's called. Every time yeah. you a fiction book like that, especially like if you're you know, doing a lot of study or research yourself, it's good to switch off and have some fiction to read. 100%. And then last question for you of the fun ones. Are you a coffee or a tea person? <laughs> oh, coffee all the way. That's the easiest one in the world. We've got tea drinkers in the office who are like, what are you guys doing? Exactly. <laughs> That's an easy one. Well, Glenn, I wanted to start off with a little bit on um, your background and perhaps you can just tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm a psychologist and I'm really, my areas of passion are eating, physical activity, weight and body image. And my, kind of my mission is to support people with those areas in a way that is compassionate because I work with a lot of people who live in larger bodies and I don't think we're always compassionate towards those people and the way that we work with them. And sometimes I think we're, we're stigmatizing towards them, whether we know it or not. Um, also in a way that is evidence-based because I think that there is such amazing research out there that, that helps us as health professionals to work with these people that we serve. But I think there's often a really big gap between what the science actually says that we should be doing and what we actually do. So I really try to practice it in an evidence-based way. And also, I try to do it in an innovative way. I think that, you know, so many people endlessly struggle with their eating, their weight, their body image, just yo-yo dieting, losing the same 10, 20, 30 kilos and regaining it. But I don't think us as health professionals necessarily do a wonderful job at supporting people. So I think that if we could do things a little bit differently in a bit of a new way, then it's always good to, to do that. So that's kind of what I do and I do it. Uh, I still work one-on-one with clients um, and I run a practice. So our, our team works in that space as well. And then, of course, we have the book and online programs to try and kind of spread these messages that people get a lot of value out of into the wider world. So that's a big part of our, our mission today. Great. That's really awesome. Um, and really interesting, you know, how you pointed out that you like to um, like look at evidence-based practice and bring that into your work. And I noticed that from reading through your book as well, you do refer to a lot of research in certain areas. And yep. um, also a topic that comes up quite often in your book is the area of emotional eating. And that's something yeah. I wanted to delve a little bit further into today because it is something that I find a lot of my clients will bring up or struggle with from time to time. So yep. can we start off with just um, looking at what exactly is emotional eating? Yeah, that's actually a really, really good question because, of course, all of our eating is emotional in a sense. True. But the emotional eating that, that we often help people work through and the stuff that is, look, it's not the end of the world, but the stuff that, that is, you know, a lot of people are doing more than they would like and we want to reduce is basically the way we define it. It's really simple is when you're eating more in response to your 
unpleasant emotions. So it's not necessarily like, you know, you might just, you know, be at a party or you're just enjoying some cake or, you you know, that, that sort of pleasure eating where you might go a bit past your, your fullness signals. That's not emotional eating. What we're talking about is when we specifically talk about emotional eating in psychological terms is that eating more in response to the yucky emotions. So if you're sad or you're stressed or you're bored or lonely or uncertain or to, to soothe yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what would you say the difference between emotional eating and say binge eating would be? Yeah. Yes. That's a really good question. And binge eating the way that we define that is eating a lot more than would be considered normal. So that's a one really important part. It's not, you know, say if you eat a pizza, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, probably more than your body needs, yeah. but if, you, if you're having that for dinner, it's probably not outside the realms of quote-unquote normality. Yeah. If you're having three pizzas, then that would qualify as a binge. So a binge is typically, and I think the way that the everyday person uses binge, they often use it to just describe overeating, but the way that a psychologist defines it, it's a lot more than would be considered normal for the situation that you're in. And the, the other element of a binge is there's often a real sense of a, a loss of control, not even just a like this part of me that doesn't want to make this decision and part of me that does, but really I feel like I'm kind of on autopilot and can't stop myself. So you can see if we define emotional eating as eating in response to unpleasant feelings and binge eating as eating much more than would be considered normal in the situation with a, a real sense of a loss of control, then there is obviously a lot of crossover between emotional and binge eating. Certainly, emotions can trigger binge eating as well. So there's definitely, they are two different things, but there is a lot of crossover. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can understand that. And I think that's a really good point to differentiate from between binge eating and simply overeating because a lot of people will think that they binge eat when in fact it might just be an occasion where they've overeaten and eaten a little more than what they normally would eat but it's not you know thousands of calories over absolutely and the way that you would help yourself through uh, a little bit of overeating uh, and the way that you would help yourself through binge eating could you know, differ drastically. They are kind of different things. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And then with emotional eating, what do you think triggers that in a person? Because I do notice that a lot of my female clients will find that, you know, if they've had like a tough day at work or they, you know, have had a fight with their partner or something, they will be triggered to emotionally eat. Why do you think that is often the case more so for females? Well, it's an interesting one because I think that we all have this kind of neural conditioning that sets us up to emotionally eat. Like emotional eating is the most normal thing in the world. We do it when we're like just out of the womb. You know, that's like often our first eating experience. I I often think about this. It's a really weird thing to think about. But like the journey of being born and how – like we know it's uncomfortable for the mum, but imagine how uncomfortable it is for the baby. And, and you think the first thing we know that innately babies, new even newborn babies that can't really see properly, can't hear very well, they know how to find food innately. And, and what we find is, you know, that, 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 that first eating experience is a combination of physical 
and emotional nurturance. And it's the beginning of emotional eating. So I think it is really, really normal. Then as, you know, as, as kids, we got kind of, uh, you know, build on that neural mapping. You know, we go to the doctor and we get a needle. So then we get a lolly afterwards. And, and so it's all reinforced. And then as adults, we then consolidate on that neural mapping and that reinforced neural mapping with our own like adult emotional eating routines. And I think that, you know, for some people it's you kind of like sneak something from a service station on the way home or you wait till like all the kids have gone to bed and it's like you're, that precious little bit of me time is shared with wine or chocolates or, you know, some people do it as part of their whole family ritual. But it's a really, really interesting question as to why women might struggle with emotional eating more than men. Certainly, I would say probably 90% of my clients are women. So that's, you know, that, that absolutely fits. Um, I think that my best answer, and I'll admit here that I don't really know exactly what all the answers are because I mainly work with women. So that's, you know, they're the main group that I work with. Um, and I would say that the treatment or the approach that we take is no different whether it's a woman or a man client. But my guess is that it's socially constructed. You know, women are taught to manage their emotions through food because, you know, emotional eating is really an unhealthy coping mechanism or what psychologists would call a maladaptive or unworkable coping mechanism. And, and, and it may be that women are just taught that that's a more acceptable way to do it, whereas for men, it might be getting angry or burying themselves in work. These are the ways that we're taught to manage our feelings that may not, you know, really help us manage our feelings in the long term. Yeah. And whereas women might be taught in other ways, and one of them is absolutely emotional eating. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm going to think out loud here at the, at the risk of sounding like an idiot and say that a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of women that I work with, don't feel free to honor their emotions and speak their truth and respect their wants and needs enough to have them them honored and i think when we do those things then we search for more subtle or passive ways to try and manage the ways that we feel and i think emotional eating is one of those you know it's, it's a pretty easy kind of convenient one you can do without having to speak up or without having to 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 make a, a big shift in your life it's something that, that that is relatively easy and that's probably why it's it's pretty understandable that a lot of people have it as their coping mechanism yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's an easy coping mechanism for a lot of people because obviously it's something that they've done for quite a long time and it's a learned uh, behavior as well. And I guess it comes then down to identifying that it's something they're struggling with and then working through, you know, their emotions rather than covering it with food and deciding, you know, is it, you know, your mood that's the problem here or is it food that you need, like and differentiating between that? hundred percent so often we we get this desire to eat and we think it's about the food whereas it's really about like you say it's about the mood or it's about the feelings that we're experiencing and we kind of have a saying in the psychology of food that there is no nutritional solution to an emotional problem and so i think that and you said a really really important thing there if i completely agree with you it's about 
identifying and catching that because often this happens, you know, in these uh, really uh, hardwired, deep, unconscious parts of our brain. So we need to bring some mindfulness to these habits before we can actually be empowered to go, oh, actually, it's not about food here. It's about mood and then look to do something different about it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm delighted you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. What would your suggestion then be on how to become more aware of identifying that problem and tackling it? Good one, good one. So if you're somebody who's listening to this and you're thinking, I think I am an emotional eater, uh, and I think if you think you are, you probably are, (laughs) um, what we want to do is try and create some mindfulness around what's going on at the time. And a, a really good way to do that, and this is, it sounds like a really weird thing to say, but to think of your urges to emotionally eat as being like a great gift. Now, a lot of my clients, when I say this to them, they kind of look at me like I'm crazy and I've got two heads. Like, you're the psychologist, aren't you supposed to have it together? Which is, as we all know, a total fallacy anyway. But <laughs> we all know that's not true. Um, when I say that, that, that I think emotional eating can be a great gift and people look at me like I'm crazy, and then what I say is that, you know, and I think this is true for emotional eaters, but almost everyone in life at times, that sometimes we kind of, we kind of meander through life and we're not that aware of the feelings that are going on for us. We're just kind of going on autopilot. And, you know, there might be some serious uh, wants and needs that we have that are not being met or some, some big changes that need to happen in our life. And, and, and what I say is that if you're an emotional eater, whenever anything is not quite right, you get this, powerful urge to eat especially when you're not hungry (laughs) and and so if you can look at that as a little gift well this is a little sign unfortunately the gift is wrapped up in this food craving when we're not hungry but if we can go okay well let's let's unwrap this gift and we'll see what's in here and what we'll typically find is that that there are just a million different ways to emotionally eat. There are, you know, as many varieties of emotional eating as there are grains in the sand. But it really, emotional eating always boils down to to one, two or three of one, two or three things. It's only three things. It's, there are some unpleasant feelings I need to, to resolve or deal with here. There are some wants or needs that I'm that are, are not being met for me, and I'm trying to meet them with food. Or there's some important change that, that that needs to happen in my life. And so, if you can think of your pull to emotionally eat as being like a gift, and, and start to, to, to question for yourself, okay, well, what what feelings are going on for me right now? Or is there something I really need that I'm not getting, and I'm trying to fill that kind of void with food? Or Am I just kind of using food as an escape because I really don't want to deal with this big thing that I need to do or this big problem I need to solve or this big change I need to make in my life? And often these seem like big questions, but the the wisdom is in there and often it will just be staring you right in the face. You you can't, not always, but nine times out of ten, you know. It's you just don't want to confront that. Yeah. But if you if you unwrap that gift and you start to, you know, that use that 
rich treasure trove of information inside that's contained within your emotions, you can actually use it to cultivate a better life than you would have if you didn't have these urges to emotionally eat. So so you can actually begin to, I call them, use your, your emotional eating superpowers. You know, you can really be, get super in tune with yourself and, and use this information to create a, a better life, not a worse life. A lot of people think of emotional eating as a burden, but a better life than you would have had without emotional eating. And I see my, it sounds, you know, maybe a bit, a bit far out, but I see it happen all the time. My clients love developing their superpowers. I've been cultivating mine for 10 years now. And I just, I absolutely think that, that with, without um, that ability to listen to myself, uh, then I wouldn't, um, I definitely wouldn't have enjoyed the, the great success that I've been lucky enough to have in my life. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that it's, it, it, and, and it's, it's also a really nice kind of compassionate way to think about emotional eating. You know, it's not yeah. a reason to, to beat yourself up or, you know, an insurmountable problem. It's yeah. something that you can channel in a really positive way in your life. Yeah. So I guess like the main point there is understanding that emotional eating is something that you're turning to for a reason. And it's more yes. about developing an awareness and more mindfulness around what's happening in that moment and why you may be reaching for food and what emotion is triggering that and starting to dig deeper into that side of things. And then once we have uncovered that, how would somebody then retrain their brain to not use food as a reaction tool? Because that's obviously something that they have learned over time and they've created that habit um, through doing it for years and years perhaps. Um, how can they then, you know, use some of your techniques to retrain their brain to not succumb to that anymore? Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about, you know, and like you say, you know, there's this sort of neural wiring here, this pairing of food and mood, you know, food being something that we can use to help us feel better and to, uh, for lack of better words, make us feel less bad. So our brain, and this happens in the reward or the pleasure center in the brain. And, and so this connection becomes like a, a super highway that our mind goes to really quickly. Those synapses are really well developed. Uh, The axons are really large. So the information just goes before we can even think about it. So the first thing is that when we create mindfulness, we start to have awareness of these quick, automatic, unconscious highways that our brain is going towards. So that in itself starts to change them because they're not happening on autopilot anymore. And then it's a matter of creating some new highways, some new pathways in the brain. And thank goodness, due to the research on neuroplasticity, we know that we can do that. We can absolutely at any age create new pathways in our brains. So I think there's probably two things that I would... Actually, there's probably three things that I would like to say about that. The, the first thing is we want to make the highway that we're creating right now that the highway to you know doing something else like maybe practicing meditation or maybe talking to a friend or whatever the strategy is going to be for us that's like a little goat track (laughs) that that is not really well well you know well forged so it 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 is the, the first thing i would say about that is we want to 
make a goat track that we like walking down. So we want to really be mindful to have a think about what will service our emotions. What actually will meet our wants and needs? What changes do want to happen? Because we want to have that reward. You know, sometimes it's like, you know, people will say, get a glass of water or go for a walk instead. And that may be the answer sometimes. But if you don't get a similar or preferably an even better reward from going down the new pathway is not going to get established in that pleasure reward system. So you do actually often have to spend quite a bit of time thinking about what will actually get you what you want because the food isn't really getting you what you want. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to work on it. Um, So that would be one thing I would say is first we have to make sure that the new path we're going is going to actually stimulate that reward and pleasure center, even if that requires a little bit more effort, which it probably will. The second point is that when we're turning that goat track into a laneway, into a proper road, into a two-lane highway, it takes effort and time. So, you know, I think one of the things that we we fall into and diet culture absolutely reinforces this is these crazy false hopes of, you know, change your thinking in seven days or takes 21 days to, to, to make a new habit is that it, we, we want to, we don't BS our people. We want to normalize the challenge. So even if you are listening to this podcast and you think, yeah, this makes sense to me, you catch yourself and you say, actually, you know what? I'm emotionally eating because I'm really annoyed at my boss and I can't talk to my boss, so I'm just eating food. And then you find a new pathway and you talk to, say you talk to a friend and you go, look, I, actually, it's not appropriate to talk to my boss because my boss is a so-and-so. I'm going to talk to my friend and that actually makes me feel better. And you have that reward and you're starting to develop that goat track in your mind. That's wonderful but you're still in that honeymoon period where it's, you're still going to automatically snap back to the highway and you've got to create a lot of mindfulness before the super highway is to go and talk to your friend and, and, and share the problem and, and, and get it off your chest. Um, some of the research in, in habits for food and exercise says it, it takes between 18 and 254 days for us to create a new habit. So, and it depends on so many things, the strength of the habit, the complexity of the new behavior. But all I take that to mean is that we need to be prepared that this is going to be a back and forth thing. And if we have the little setbacks, they're actually not a problem. They're a part of the process. Love that. And I think, yeah, and I think the third thing that is related to that is that 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 old highway is so strong that it's going to take a long time before that sort of, you know, the trees start growing over that highway and it starts to break down. And the reality is that it may never completely break down. So we don't have to be perfectionistic about this. A bit of emotional eating is not the end of the world. In fact, it's really normal and sometimes it can be healthy for us. It's when it becomes your main or your sole way of managing your emotions that we run into trouble. So even if that highway is still there, we can branch out and, and, and while that kind of whittles away over the years, create some, some, some new pathways to go on and, and you know, build them up, 
then we'll be right. So all of the work we do with people is not about being perfectionistic. Perfectionism is the enemy of helping yourself with eating, exercise, weight, body image concerns. It's about taking imperfect steps forward and not till you get to this, you know, magic food nirvana, but, but until you get to a place that works for you in your life. Yeah, fantastic. That is so true because something that I often talk to my clients about as well, the importance of, you know, building habits and understanding that building new habits takes time and also getting away from the idea of having to be perfect. And I think that's something a lot of people do struggle with, like you said. And it's also something that I find a lot of people struggle with and they look at food or dieting in black and white and they start to develop rules around food. And I know that's something that you've mentioned um, in your book as well, um, how yep. you know, people can set themselves up for failure by having rules around how they should eat. And what that basically does is results in them then having um, you know, one of those bucket moments, I guess, where they're just going to throw it all out the window and just eat whatever because they are so trapped by these rules that they have in their mind. 100%. Look, I could talk, there's a whole chapter in the book on that and I could, we could do 10 <laughs> podcasts on that. But what do I want to say about that? And look, I, as I'm saying this, I'm aware that if I'm talking to people who have struggled with food, this is an incredibly difficult thing to begin to do. And it takes a lot of trust is that often if we don't trust ourselves with food, we do create rules. I have to eat at this time. I can't eat at this time. Uh, I've, I, I, I can only eat a certain amount of calories, for example. I can't go above that or below that. And while sometimes rules can direct us and guide us, they always run the risk, if we look into the psychology of food, they run the risk of undermining our internal wisdom. So our bodies naturally know when to start eating. Our bodies get hungry. We're like, we have to eat now. Uh, and they naturally know when to stop eating. They stop getting hungry partway through when we're eating. And then when we get it even fuller, there's a, there's a louder signal telling us to stop. So we have these natural start and stop signals. And our bodies also tell us what they like eating and what they don't like eating. So if we eat pizza and pasta and big heavy meals, three, you know, three meals a day for, for a few days, our bodies are going to feel differently to if we eat more protein, uh, more vegetables, more natural, real foods. This is not a, a rule that we need to create about eating these things. And our, definitely that the model of eating that we, we follow is a very gentle and a very flexible approach. But the, the wisdom that we advocate for, uh, again, comes from mindfulness. It comes from learning what works for your unique body because our bodies are all, of course, a little bit different. And, and listening to that intuition, what we call intuitive eating, and, and starting to guide your eating choices with internal wisdom rather than external rules, which can create that effort effect that we call the what the hell effect. Like I've broken my rules. I've got to, you know, now I can just kind of just go crazy until I start my next diet. 
it starts all of this psychological rebellion when we have rules. It starts the sometimes we have the Last Supper effect where it's like yeah. we're going into our diet, so we're just going to eat everything in sight before we start our diet. Um, we we see um, the, the the what we call the forbidden fruit effect, mm-hmm. where we automatically ban certain foods that we really love and then start to crave them more. Then we get obsessed with eating them. Uh, we don't eat them, but then when we finally do, we go crazy. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of rebellion, that, that, that there's a lot of psychological rebellion that starts to come up when we create food rules for ourselves, especially if they're very rigid or very restrictive or perfectionistic. Yeah. So it's really worth like shying away from that sort of thinking when it comes to food and applying more of a moderation approach and not labeling foods as off limits, I think, really, because that's what sets people up for failure. When they start to ban certain foods or restrict certain food groups, then they start to crave them more. And that results in just everything kind of going to hell. 100%. Yeah, that's what we call the forbidden fruit effect. Yeah. <laughs> so on that one, actually, um, could you tell us um, some mindset strategies that you use with your clients to help them if they struggle with um, food and say yo-yo dieting, for example, um, you know, that the last supper effect, like you mentioned, you know, say a person that is constantly starting a new diet every week and yep. they're really struggling to get out of that cycle. What sort of yep. mindset strategies could they use? So the, the biggest thing that comes to my mind here that we, that we have to talk about is that all of these, uh, these rebellious effects, the last supper effect, the what the hell effect, the forbidden fruit effect, they all happen when we diet. We don't see these effects in people who don't diet. So they're not eating issues, they're dieting issues. So the, the, best way to to make sure that we're not creating that psychological rebellion is not to diet so and we again we talk about this in the book and there's there's a lot to dieting we go through the the main dieting factors that tell you you're on a diet but if we just focus on the first one is that the biggest factor that tells us that we're dieting is when we're making a food choice are we thinking is that the, the, the thing in the forefront of our mind, how is this food choice going to affect my weight? Is it going to help me maintain my weight? Is it going to put on weight? Is it going to help me lose weight? So if, we're th- if when we're thinking about food choices, we're thinking about the first thing we're thinking about, the most important thing is the impact of those choices on our weight, we're dieting. It doesn't matter whether we call it um, like a health kick or a, um, a you know, a, 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 a detox or whatever we call it. If you're doing that, this is when we start to get all of those rebellious effects. So, so often the thing to do here is very easily said, stop focusing so much on the scales, but actually very, very difficult to do, to do deep down. It's easy to say, but it is difficult to, and I'm not talking about, um, making weight as if it doesn't matter or it's completely unimportant. But what I am talking about is about fundamentally letting go of that obsession with the scales and with having to be always thinner and fearing being fatter. And and what I mean is 
zooming out from the scales to see our health and well-being and success and happiness as multifaceted, not just about one number. And I think that's easy to say that we're doing, but it, it is harder to feel deep down. And so that's what I would encourage people if you have been a yo-yo dieter and you know, you've done four, five, six diets, don't do another one. Let's look to do something radically different. And instead of looking to lose weight so you can love your body, see if you can start the other way around and start with loving your body into its most healthy self instead. Um, so I would encourage people to explore, and I know that you are at least somewhat familiar with these ideas, you know, mm -hmm. think of the non-diet approach or uh, intuitive eating, joyful movement, start to explore some of those approaches if, if the, the old way of doing things hasn't given you the results you've wanted in the long term because that's a really important point. Part of the reason why we keep dieting is because it, it, you know, it feels good in the short term. Yeah. But if you've done a lot of those, we, we talk about um, yeah, the, the weight loss and the regain following it, like uh, researchers talk about this, like the Nike swoosh. If you've, yeah. you know, the Nike swoosh goes down and then shoots back up. So if you've done three or four or five of those Nike swooshes, what I would encourage uh, everyone who's listening to do is to, to think, actually, you know what, let's see if we can do something different. You know, the title of my book is Thin Sanity and it's kind of a play on words. It's about the, the I see thin sanity as, you know, that crazy obsession that we all have with being thinner, no matter how large or small we, ha we are. But also it's kind of a play on words because Einstein said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And this is what I see a lot of people do with weight loss dieting. They just jump from diet to diet to diet and they, they're thinking that they're doing something different when they're really doing something that is really just a rebranded version of a weight loss diet. So we encourage a real deep and fundamental shift that de-emphasizes weight and not makes it unimportant, but de-emphasizes it on a fundamental level and helps you see your health and your well-being and success really holistically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important for people that do get really hung up on the scale weight. And, you know, when they see that number creep up, you know, one day out of the week, it affects their entire day and their entire week and their decisions that day. And I think for people that uh, find they have that sort of emotional reaction to their weight, they really need to, like you said, zoom out and start to look at, you know, how can they make their whole entire life better rather than focusing on this one number as an indicator of their success? Because it's more important to look at, you know, how you're, you can be happy and healthy and fuel your body well. And like you said, look at other aspects of your health and wellness, you know, look at fueling your body well for your training so you can get stronger in the gym because that will help you feel a lot better than focusing on a number that is just going to always go up and down on a daily basis and try to move away from looking at that and allowing that to shape your day.
Absolutely. And I just think when you say that, I thought something came to my mind that I'm I'm sure you will agree with is that when you do that, I think some people say, oh, if I'm not going to focus on the scales anymore, then I've, I've kind of, I've given up or I've resigned that I'm going to be fat forever or, and it, that's not what we're talking about. If, you know, we're talking about creating a really healthy relationship with food, a really healthy relationship with physical activity and a really healthy relationship with your body and some really great healthy habits. Mm-hmm. And and when you do that, over time, this time could be three months or it could be three years, over time, your body will naturally figure out what weight and shape and size it wants to be. So it's not a cop-out that you're kind of like, you know, spitting the dummy and, you know, throwing your toys out of the pram. It's, it's, it's you looking at taking care of yourself in a different way. And what I say to my clients is if you're – you know, listening to your body and you're you're eating really well, not perfectly, but really well, if you're moving regularly without moving obsessively and you have a healthy relationship with your body, then, I mean, what can we as health professionals, we can't ask any more of you and and you can't ask any more of yourself. Yeah, that's it. And that's it. You know, overall happiness and, you know, how you feel about yourself has to be the end game. Like it can't be a number on the scale that's going to define, you know, whether you're going to feel happy or not. You've really got to zoom out and look at like your life as a whole and how you feel. And that needs to be the ultimate goal of what you're working towards. Yeah. And I think you said something really important a couple of times there, Aoife, you said how you feel and, you know, what works for you because we have to sort of, you know, when we're talking, we're sort of starting to talk a little bit about kind of, I suppose, body image here. And, and when, when we talk about that, we have to acknowledge that if, you know, if you get however many of your clients, we line all of your clients up and they're all angel clients. They follow all of your recommendations for two years straight. Say you've got, I don't know how many clients you've got, but say you've got a hundred, you are still going to have, 100 different shapes and sizes and realistically if we're speaking honestly only probably one or two or three of those shapes or sizes are going to fit society's ideal so there has to come a point where you go stuff society's ideal i'm actually going to have my own standards for health and fitness and food and beauty ones that work for me in my life because the beauty industry is intent on me feeling unsatisfied that's the whole basis of the model and the dieting industry is intent on the same thing as well you know if i reach a weight and shape and size that my body is happy with then it doesn't work for the diet industry if my brain is also happy with that they're always getting you to try and lose the last five kilos or trim down for summer or lose the baby weight or whatever it is. So there has to come a point in all of this where we say, I'm going to free myself from society's expectations of my body and really thoughtfully think about a type of body and a type of lifestyle that works for me yeah I think that is so true and I 100% agree and I think it is a huge problem nowadays with social media because so many young women in particular will grow up you know looking at social media and seeing these perfect images that are clearly you know photoshopped or you know taken in you know certain lighting and certain angles and so on and they think that they need to look like that and I think it's so important like you said 
to try to build your own idea of what you want your life to look like. And it doesn't have to revolve around looking a certain way. And I find that with my clients that actually start to focus more on other things apart from their body composition and look at, you know, their training and their strength goals and also start looking at food as nourishment and fuel for their body, then they get way better outcomes and they feel so much happier in themselves. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, that the, 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 you know, when this thin ideal and this stigmatization of fatness have entered this realm of social media, it's like now we're doing the beauty and the diet industry's dirty work for them. You know, we're, we're, we, you know, we all end up becoming these victims of this crazy obsession with the thin ideal, but also perpetrators ourselves. And I think that, that, you know, there's, I do a lot of work with people on body image. There's a, there's a, a couple of steps in the book on body image. And, and, and one of the things that were the areas where we always start is actually just with your social media. Yeah. You know, you, you can't, um, you can't change your body ideals when you're being bombarded with hundreds, maybe thousands of these thin ideal messages every day. So what I say to, to people to start off with is to do a spring clean of your social media yeah. and just look at all of the things that are telling the messages that are telling you that your body is the only important thing, all of the messages where the key image is of a thin or an often an unrealistically thin person because that's a great, great selling tool. Anything that makes you feel like you're less than or you need to... To, to change yourself from a place of shame um, and, and start to, to declutter your environment from that. And what you'll find is that, that over time, and, and often this is only a couple of weeks, your thinking will change because you're not being bombarded with these images that are telling you that you're not good enough for often many hours in the one day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Love that. And before we finish up, Glenn, because I know we're running out of time, I wanted to um, get you to just talk a little bit more about your book because I know um, it's uh, launching in America pretty soon. And I know a few of my clients who are listening to this are based in America. So they'll be interested to hear about that. So tell us a bit more about the book itself. And um, I believe we have a discount code available as well. I'll pop that in the show notes below for everyone. Very cool. Yes. So the book. So yeah, you can get the book anywhere in ebook format i just recorded the audiobook last year in the middle of covid flying down to sydney that was fun but the audiobook's really really good um if you don't you know you'll know if you like the sound of my voice by now um and you can get it in australia you can get it in the uk and probably around about the time when this um this podcast comes out you'll be able to get it in the us but we've set up that special discount code just for your people and you'll provide the link and that's to these like uh, to a special signed copy so all of those ones i sign them and give them like an extra little bit of love um but basically the book is a combination of two things like you say there's a lot of science in the book so for science geeks there's over 200 academic articles in the book and that's because i think that science 
is the way that we can understand truth and the way that we understand what actually works versus what people say works. So there's a, there's a strong basis of science. But I think that that I'm not a, I'm, if I'm not a, a researcher, I've, done, I've published some research, but my, my area, and, and I think my, for lack of better words, value to people is not in the research I've conducted, but in me translating the research into ideas and strategies and models that actually work for people in real life. So I've my I am at heart a practitioner and I've spent well over 10,000 hours working just one on one with people talking them through these challenges, you know. So I know how to help people make the ideas, you know, the ideas of uh, body positivity and intuitive eating and de-emphasizing the scales and focusing on holistic goals and not focusing on short-term changes but focusing on habits that last for life and all these things that we talk about things like overcoming emotional eating and learning new ways what i call more marvelous methods to manage our moods you know it's the book is is very much a a how-to guide and it's it's written in a very um i think just like we're talking now very conversational very relatable way and and what i've chosen is uh you know the, the the strategies and the techniques that are the most bang for buck. You know, our lives are very complicated, so we don't need complicated therapy or complicated process of change. So I've, I've chosen the most bang for buck activities that really work for most people and are pretty easy to do. And I just talk you through them in a, a series of steps. And we actually do some some measures of your mindset, things like emotional eating, body image, relationship with food, um, and then work through sections of the book and just constantly retest ourselves so you can actually see yourself changing. Yeah. Awesome. And there are definitely some really good strategies in there. As I said, I've dipped in and out of it and used parts of it when working with clients as well and referred them to have a look at it. Um, So definitely um, would recommend it for anyone who is struggling with emotional eating and looking for some strategies to cope with that. Uh, and before we finish up then, Glenn, where can people find you um, online, you know, uh, face-to-face where um, can people find you if you want to look you up? Yeah. So you can find me. Um, well, I've got a website. It's just glennmackintosh.com. Um, if you, if anyone wants to, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, so feel free to, to say hello to me there. It's my, I'll spell my name for you because it's a weird one. Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, because dad was generous. And Macintosh is spelt the least common way that you can spell Macintosh, which is M-A-C-K-I-N-T-O-S-H. So hit me up and tell me that, you know, say hello from the podcast. And then if anyone, um, you know, so if anyone's interested in our online programs, um, the Glenn Macintosh website has our new online program, the Transformation Support Community, which is basically like a supported version of the book just to help you put those principles into practice. And um, if anyone would want to see our clinicians, so our team of of psychologists, um, the best website is www.the longest website in the world, weightmanagementpsychology.com.au. So that's pretty much everywhere you can find me. Fantastic. I'll put all of those in the show notes below so that people can click through on them instead of trying to remember them all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Glenn. It was a fantastic chat and I'm sure... A lot of people will have gained a lot of knowledge and info from what you've shared with us.
thank you so much for having me. We have covered a lot. And if you know, if people just get what, something out of this that, that helps them, then we've done our job. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of today's episode with Glenn. I hope you enjoyed our chat today and I hope you have gained something from it if you do suffer from emotional eating. I'm sure some of the strategies that Glenn has shared today will be very helpful. If you did enjoy it and you took something away from the show, I would absolutely love if you could share it to your Instagram story. You can tag me at activelyifa, tag the podcast at empowerher.fitness and you can also tag Glenn at Glenn McIntosh with the way he spelt it in the episode there and as well as that if you are listening on apple podcasts i would super appreciate if you could leave me a review and rating it just helps with the visibility of the podcast when people are searching for nutrition and fitness related podcasts thanks again for listening and i will speak to you guys in the next episode <laughs>